Welcome to 109, episode 109 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, with the Professor Peter Van Onselen. I'm I'm just in my garage at the moment, just with the paintbrushes, just writing up my next sign for my next protest. (laughs) Uh, You know, I thought some of them were fairly juicy, but I think we can take it to a whole new level. Mm. PVO... I don't know if you attended any of these protests in recent days. <laughs> For the record, I did not, Hugh. I, I feel like I should probably put that out there right at the start. Oh. But I assume you mean in a journalistic capacity. <laughs> in any capacity, in any capacity. It's funny because I was uh, walking through town in Sydney at the weekend and uh, the protest just broken up. And people were start, starting to stream through carrying their placards. I'd stop for a coffee at a little place in East Sydney and um, the famous Bill and Tony's Cafe. And what was striking as folks came through wearing, you know, carrying placards and with their various T-shirts on now zipped up underneath tops of various kinds was, you know, broadly speaking, how normal they looked and also how old. And I don't mean aged. I just mean that this wasn't a kind of a, a youthful burst type protest. The people seemed to be, you know, middle-aged in the age of sense and discretion. There is something going on that we probably need to unpack a little. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that there's, well, I guess it's a a mixed demographic, but it's still a small demographic. But the issue for me with these protests is, uh, I suppose, how representative is some of the concerns or are some of the concerns in the broader community as opposed to you know, the, the radical, untoward, outrageous attitudes that you see creeping into the protests. And that obviously brings us to the Prime Minister, doesn't it, with some of the criticisms that he's, I think, quite rightly receiving for the way that he's discussing the protests as the national leader and whether or not, you know, playing politics with the protests, even if he's not wrong with some of the sentiment that might be behind there, is inappropriate as we count down to the election. I think what's changed... What struck me has changed is that the tone and the nature of the protests has shifted a little bit from being one that's specific about uh, vaccinations, which is what the early protests were about, and then that notion of mandated vaccinations and various jobs, into a general sense of uh, displeasure in a whole fruit salad of issues. Mm. You know, so that on one level you're seeing these quite atrocious, well, fully atrocious, you know, some unspeakable banners suggesting sexual violence against elected politicians that really there and others who if you look at the social media associated with it are people who are concerned about things like Australia doesn't manufacture goods anymore Mm. and so so this is what I see kind of going on is that they've become a bit of a lightning rod for a whole bunch of disparate you know disagreements with the way in which national politics has gone so it's no longer enough to say well actually you're in a tiny minority because 95% of people in New South Wales, basically close to, are now fully vaccinated. So, you know, there is no big uptake of your central argument. But some of those other peripheral arguments now being sucked into the vortex of it do sort of reflect views that are out there that are going to be playing into marginal seats coming into the next election. And while I think Morrison was completely out of line to put a butt after his condemnation of violence and, and the, you know, promotion of violence, there is, you know, I'm sounding like I'm qualifying like he is, but... Um, <laughs> We're not politicians, Hugh, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's an old good saying, everything before the butt is bullshit. 
So you reveal what you say after you've said the word but, mm. and that's the danger that Morrison wandered into plainly. And, and I think David Groh made this point on Insiders quite eloquently on Sunday, I thought. It's not you know, necessarily, and I hope he doesn't think that I'm taking him out of context, but it's not necessarily that Morrison is wrong in some of what he says after the but. It's that a national leader doing so is instantly sending a message that there is a level of tolerance towards what's happened. And the problem with that is that words do matter. And this is really what David Crow was getting at. Words matter, and they particularly matter when we're talking about political leaders. They particularly matter when you're talking about a prime minister. And they matter even more when you're talking about a prime minister in the midst of those sort of protests with some of the fringe elements within it. It's a tough one for him, though, and and, he's not the person that deserves our sympathy here, but it is an interesting point because I think a lot of people do, and now I've thrown the butt in, I think a lot of people do have concerns about the nature of where rights sit, including for the unvaccinated, even those of us who are vaccinated. You can't, however, just make that point in the midst of a discussion about protests with some of what we saw going on with the imagery, the signs and the violence. That's the problem that Scott Morrison has. You almost have to have two separate moments in time where you're making those points, whereas when he conflates them and tries to condemn with one hand but then understand or acknowledge sentiment with the other, he's not wrong in the nuance, but he is wrong to try to deliver nuance to a situation that can't afford nuance because a national leader has to speak very clearly and authoritatively in condemnation of some of those things. It's an excellent point, isn't it? Because if he just stopped and said, I condemn this type of language, it has no place in Australia, it should stop, people should pull their heads in, that would have been fine. He said that, and then the but. Then the next day, and this is classic Morrison, he said, well, yesterday I I unequivocally denounced the violence. Uh, I'm not quoting him directly, but that was the tone of it. And, of course, he's right, he did. (laughs) But then there was the but. Mm. And really, this goes back to another cycle we've talked about before with uh, Scott Morrison, and that is he tends to give a news conference on issues where it's not quite as heated as a suggestion of, you know, fomenting of violence in these protests, but where he will talk all around. He will take a position on every position around a particular issue in the course of one of his rambling news conferences. And so then he can always thereafter say, well, of course, I didn't say that. doesn't matter how it goes in future. He said that position because that's the nature of the way in which he manages it. You know, he'll cover all positions off. Yeah, that's very, very true, isn't it? But you can't do it on something like this. It's all, all brilliantly um, unpicked in that uh, Sean Kelly book, The Game, of course. So one of the things, all of this, of course, reminds us of Pauline Hanson, 1996, and shortly thereafter when she was picking up on all the, uh, or at least a lot of that populist disaffection on a whole bunch of issues. and. John Howard didn't seem to know what to do with her for a while. They obviously removed the pre-selection from Pauline Hanson as she was standing in a seat that Labour held and was unlikely to lose. Then after she got uh, uh, deselected from the seat or lost the Liberal pre-selection, she stood as an independent and famously won it. And I'm seeing a little bit of the Howard at the time didn't know whether to embrace her or to run from her. And I'm seeing a bit of that Scott Morrison with this movement, with some polling showing Clive Palmer's party picking up 17 to 20% as a primary vote in a few le- electorates. Yeah, and, and I think there is a really interesting parallel there. I mean, John Howard, by the end of his time dealing with Pauline Hanson, and let's face it, even though she's back now, during his tenure, if you like, he vanquished her, uh, whether he can take credit for that or circumstances can is a whole other debate. 
but he would now argue that having got his ducks lined up for how he wanted to address her eventually, that his pathway to that was don't drive people towards her radical positions by trying to almost silence her or condemn her beyond what she deserves, you know, just simply condemn it, move on. Don't try to really sort of turn her, you know, if you focus too much on her, you'll turn her into a flag for people who are disaffected to come to her. And of course he has political skin in the game or had political skin in the game to try to make sure that that didn't happen. And, and it is a parallel to Scott Morrison now. What's not necessarily the parallel is the outcome out the other side, is it? Because it's hard for me to really see what Morrison is doing here other than simply trying to garner preferences for the next election. Whereas John Howard, arguably, in his way of dealing with Paulie Hanson, as much as he was criticised at the time, there was a greater threat of her and her movement rising to become a, a near-to major party force in Australian politics. You think about that Queensland election in 98, where they got the balance of power. I don't see any sense of that with this movement on the right flank, if I could put it that way, of Scott Morrison now. This is pure politics, right? Now, people who question Howard's motives would say it was all about politics too, but it was about politics and vanquishing a potential rising up force on the right that had real political clout developing. Here, it's just a preference situation. It's just a strategy for the election. You know, if, if Scott Morrison doesn't go down this path, I don't see that side of politics gaining a representative foothold at the next election, but I do see them potentially costing him the election if their preference flows don't come back to him. And that seems to me to be somewhat of the difference between Howard and Morrison on the scale of lesser of evils. In hindsight, the Howard strategy had more to it than pure base politics, whereas I think the Morrison one is pure base politics. Interesting. And of course, Tony Abbott had a role in pursuing Hanson all the way to jail at one stage. Mm. Uh, and his argument very strongly was that you must treat her as an enemy. She's not a friend on your outside who'll gather preferences for you. You must treat her as an enemy and, and go after her using tools other than rhetorical ones. Helped by the fact that Pauline Hanson's party, when it did get close to political power, particularly in Queensland, basically collapsed because people didn't have a clue what they were doing. Part of the appeal of it was the very reason that it couldn't sustain credibility for any length of time. Yeah, it's almost the definition of, of you know, anarchist sentiment which is what fringe parties often are. They've got a level of anarchy about them. You know, when they get their hands to some extent on power, they inevitably uh, collapse for the very bases that, that they're built on discontent, not on solutions. So do you think there'll be any Palmer members of parliament in the next parliament? Will Craig Kelly possibly get up in, in his own, the seat he currently holds in Hughes in Sydney? Look, I suppose he's the best chance of winning, isn't he, whether he runs in Hughes? Is he confirmed he's running in Hughes or is he shifting to the Senate? I mean, the problem he's got is that the Senate for New South Wales is a hard Senate race for a minor party as the largest state in the Commonwealth. But then by the same token, the city Hughes does his personal following get him over the line. If everyone's running against him, you'd, you'd think not. On a guess, I would say he's certainly their best chance uh, and there can always be a snake chance somewhere that you just don't see coming. But realistically, I, I doubt it. I doubt that. Palmer's party gets there, certainly in the lower house. If they get there in the Senate, they get there at the expense of one nation. But I sort of doubt that anyway, because I would have thought Pauline Hanson, who is up for re-election at this election, I would have thought that she stands a better chance than a, a no-name person on behalf of Palmer United up in Queensland. So I would guess not, but I tell you what, you know, <laughs> predicting these sort of outcomes seat by seat is getting fraught with danger. What, what about, and I know I'm segueing here, but what about this 
independent move that is running across moderate liberal electorates. Hugh, do you see any of them managing to get over the line, you know, like taking on Dave Sharma, for example, in Wentworth or taking on Trent Zimmerman in North Sydney, or I think Jason Falinski will face a similar challenge. Uh, and obviously in Warringah, you've already got Zali Stegel there. That's the model, you know, same as Haynes in Indi. Uh, do you see any of these moderate, I guess you might call them small L liberal independents, knocking off supposedly small L liberal moderates within the Liberal Party who are seen to not be doing enough to push the cause for such moderate issues? Well, um, I don't think the independence movement is going to succeed as well as they think it will. I think Zali Stegall has a fair chance to hang on hmm. and she could become part of the furniture, a bit like Andrew Wilkie has become part of the furniture in, uh, in Tasmania. Yep. Apparently, the Liberal Party believes it's got a chance of taking Indi back based in northern Victoria. Is that right? The the one that uh, first Cathy McGowan, who, who really started the model for the movement and successfully passed over to Helen Haynes. I, I, I'm not so sure about that. I think that that, that might be one where it's sufficiently well entrenched to make it last. The other one which you'd say is most vulnerable would be Dave Sharma in Wentworth. He holds it on just a 1.3% margin. So it's the third most marginal uh, liberal held seat in the land. But it must be recalled that he got that seat by taking down a sitting MP who was the independent Karen Phelps. Mm. So it went to preferences in a long count before he was able to be declared the winner. But now he's been there. He is now the incumbent. And I think that the factors that put Karen Phelps in there as an independent, that was the kind of anger over the, um, the dumping of their local member, Malcolm Turnbull, of course, in 2018, that has dissipated. So I think it becomes more difficult rather than easier for an independent in that electorate. Yeah, I agree with that. Not to say it's not impossible. The daughter of Carla Zampati, sort of local hero, the late uh, fashion designer, daughter of um, is John Spender, wasn't it, who was a minister? <clears throat> yeah, former Liberal, yeah. Yeah, in the Liberal Party and at Fraser years. She has put up a hand, according to reports in the paper, as an independent, so she's certainly got name recognition. I think it'll be a tough ask myself to expand that. And then it'll be interesting to see where the movement goes. And even the money that's now coming in with the match money from Simon Holmes at court tends to take off what will, is part of the appeal for independence, and that is that they're not associated with money or, or any other interests, that they're absolutely up from the grassroots. So you have a kind of a damned if you, damned if you don't. If you have someone who's got money and can help you with these things, it makes a big difference. But it also takes just a tiny bit of the gloss off as being a genuine grassroots sort of nickels and dimes type movement. Mm -hmm. My gut feeling is they ain't going to do it. What's yours? Yeah, look, I, I tend to lean the same way as you on that one. I actually think North Sydney might be their best chance against Trent Zimmerman. But I, I take your point on Dave Sharma, but exactly as you point out, because you've got a baked in advantage to the independence from the last election result where Dave Sharma still managed to narrowly get over the line, you would assume he'll do it again this time. But a lot of it will depend, you know, stating the obvious here, on the next few months, won't it? Because if there's no groundswell of support for a change of government, you know, if the move isn't on, so to speak, then I think that all of these individual moderate Liberal seats hold on. If, however, there is that mood for change, which means a change to a Labor government and an Anthony Albanese prime ministership, I think you then also have a concurrent move to boot out Liberals who are perceived to have done smaller Liberalism no favours when they should have. Uh, and you can sort of have the two things happen in tandem. And, and that that would be interesting to watch how it happens. I mean, one way or the other, though, if there isn't a move on, 
such that you just have a totemic shift in the electoral fortunes and therefore Albanese wins in somewhat of a canter. I find it really hard to see either side of politics securing their own majority at the next election. So whether it's Scott Morrison getting back or whether it's shifting to Anthony Albanese, I feel like we're going to be facing days, if not weeks, of negotiation with the crossbench out the other side of the election. Because getting to that magic number of, well, 76, but I guess it's in a sense 77 now that the parliament's been increased to 151 lower house seats. I I just don't see either side of politics getting there unless, as I say, there's a big move on for a change of government or the petrol runs out of the tank of Labor's attacks on the government and Scott Morrison therefore pulls away closer to polling day. Fascinating. And when talking about independence, there is an outside chance and a whole mess of preferences, which is basically how it'll be resolved, that Hughes, the Craig Kelly seat, might wind up in the hands of an independent. It's certainly not without, uh, without any possibility. Let's talk about other vulnerable seats in the last sitting period of Parliament. But quickly, first, a little break. Welcome back. This is episode 109 of The Professor and the Hack. And if we're sounding a little ropey, look, I do apologise. We're doing this, what for me is pretty early in the morning before PVO drives down to Parliament for the last sitting, and I don't operate well very early in the morning. <laughs> Let's talk about the last sitting and what might come out of it in just a moment. Before we do, on the theme of where the election might be won and lost, the difficulty for Labour is that if you look at the pendulum, if you like, It has so many vulnerable seats, more vulnerable seats on lower margins than the coalition does. And this is giving heart to the coalition that they will pick up seats sufficient to protect against those that they will inevitably lose. There are some looking down that list which are plainly vulnerable on the Labour side. Uh, Gilmore, for example, in southern New South Wales, is where Andrew Constance, a popular local member at state level, a minister in what was the Berejiklian government is uh, certainly put his hand up, presumably will get pre-selected. Yep. That will be difficult, you'd think. There, there's Eden Monero, famously the bellwether seat. There's even Lily, Wayne Swan's old seat up in Queensland, sitting on 0.6%, changing demographics there. How much at risk do you think Labor is? Yeah, look, uh, and let me add to that. I mean, Patterson is another one uh, in the Hunter region. And indeed, Joel Fitzgibbon's seat of Hunter is, is vulnerable, if not to a, a liberal takeover to a one nation or, or crossbench of some sort configuration with Joel Fitzgibbon's retirement. And, and Macquarie and Parramatta as Western suburb seats, prior to all the problems with the lockdown in New South Wales, there were really high hopes, particularly Macquarie, one of the most marginal seats in the country, but also Parramatta now that I think there's a state Liberal MP who is shifting to run at the federal level. So there are all those seats which certainly prior to the bungling of the vaccine rollout and the lockdowns in New South Wales, there was a strong view in liberal circles that they could pick up as many as half a dozen seats, believe it or not, across New South Wales to offset potential losses elsewhere. Western Australia being an area where that's likely, possibly Victoria as well. The big unknown is whether or not the problems with the vaccine rollout, which have now been rectified, but only after over 100 days of lockdown and pain in New South Wales, whether or not that has residual anger that is if you like, damage the coalition's chances in in some of those seats, particularly the ones in Western Sydney, for example, where the lockdown was the hardest, or have they come far enough out the other side of it such that that anger doesn't exist and there is an anti-Labor sentiment in those seats coupled with things like, you know, retiring Sydney members, the Labor member for Parramatta is retiring, for example, 
such as uh, the capacity to have, as you mentioned, people like Constance coming into a seat like Gilmore, which they really should have won at the last election but didn't because of the messiness of the three-cornered contest with Warren Mundine charging in there for the Nationals and not quite getting the job done, not being a local. So, yeah, I think there are a number of seats that the coalition quite rightly thinks it can jag off Labor, but whether it can actually get the job done is another matter, isn't it? That's that's their problem, the same way that you have to question whether Albanese and Labor can get the job done with those seats that have much higher margins than you would normally expect to be able to get even just a handful of seats shifting to their side of the column to give them government. And that's why I keep coming back to this idea that I think it's more likely that there is a hung parliament than that there is a majority on either side unless there's a sudden move closer to polling day. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating, isn't it? What do you make of the attack lines from Albanese? Because he's definitely moved from the point where we're in pre-election mode. So we've moved from the point where there's a pandemic on, and so it's his been responsible duty to sit there, make some constructive criticisms, but not be seen as gratuitously making political attacks. Well, that's fine and good, but we can now see a finishing line. It's time for him to you know, break and start running for it. And we've seen him sharpen up some of his lines. But I've got to say, it hasn't struck me that he's being particularly effective at it. Even when he was criticising Morrison over the um, is he or isn't he denouncing violence and threats of violence within these protests, he seemed to turn up with a sort of a list of about 10 quite reasonable points to attack him on and then proceed to more or less recite down through them. And none of them stuck. Whereas Tony Abbott would have picked one and savaged his opponent on it Mm. in very simple terms. And I just wonder, uh, I spoke to a a Labour apparatchik, a former Labour apparatchik at the weekend who was of the same view, that a certain despairing nature about whether Albanese has yet figured out how to attack Scott Morrison and make it stick. It's a really interesting question, actually, isn't it? Because... I I hear the same thing and I wonder the same thing. I wonder whether he's trying a little bit like how Bill Shorten tried to go through all these different paths of attack and ultimately came up short on every single one of them and, and didn't have, as you put it, the simplicity of that message from opposition. I mean, generally speaking, when governments change, it is a simple, hard hitting message that the opposition has coupled with some sort of positive notion for the reason to change governments. Now, you know, Abbott was a big change to the latter. He didn't have the big positive reason to change. He just had the attacks, the simple attacks. But this time around, I'm not sure that we're getting either yet from Labor. You know, Anthony Albanese is sort of treading cautiously, throwing barbs, but not with the ferocity that you might require. You know, you've got to be prepared to lose skin on your personal ratings as an opposition leader to go hard, to be able to put discontent of the government in voters' minds. Or you have to go very positive and have a somewhat big target agenda uh, you know, sort of Whitlam-esque, if you like, about about what you would do differently. And we're not seeing that either from Albanese. And and if you don't have the it's time factor, which can substitute for both of those, then you can't win as an opposition. So, you know, he's trying to dip his toe into each of these areas without really fully committing. And I guess the question, Hugh, is do we see some version of him fully committing in time ahead of the election? for that to become the message for why there needs to be a change of government. Because if voters don't get that at the federal level, they're unlikely to change governments, are they? They, We forget this. Voters tend to be conservative in their voting decision-making. In other words, it's not a common thing to kick governments out. You know, we've had it so few times since World War II on both sides of the parliament. Governments tend to last a long time. 
And yes, this is a, a three-term government seeking a fourth term, but it's still the first prime minister to go an entire term before getting to the people since John Howard did that between 04 and 07, which is of itself an extraordinary sort of comment. Yes, it's you know you just think that Albanese needs wit, and a good attack line is one which has people repeating to their mates where it's such a good line, people repeat it almost like the punchline to a joke because it has power and simplicity and it just lands it. And that, that I think, is, is what's missing because, you know, Morrison gives them plenty of opportunities to do it. But uh, oh, he's got, he's got weaknesses all over the place, doesn't he? I mean, it's a fascinating... I, I put this in, in my weekend column that, you know, Morrison's... And I think I've said it before when we've talked, Morrison has a single-lane, dead-straight highway to victory and it's the economy and attacking Labor as the worst economic managers, whether that's fair or not. That's the, the pathway to victory. Very narrow, very straight, and it's a highway. No, <laughs> no pothole, but he can't veer from it. Whereas Labor, you know, they've got a dozen goat tracks all around where, which can get them to victory. The gender problems and the poor handling of sexual misconduct in the parliament. They've got issues of trust with Scott Morrison. They've got, you know, the bungled vaccine rollout. They've got all sorts of pathways to victory, which include, by the way, just differences in the Federation as well, where they could even literally get there on a shift in somewhere like WA if they can hold the line elsewhere because of just how frustrated with the Liberals um, a lot of West Australians are and how supportive of a Labor state premier they are. There's all these goat tracks to victory. You know, the lack of a corruption watchdog on the watch of Scott Morrison, despite promises to the contrary. But none of them of themselves look like getting Labor there unless something shifts between now and polling day. Whereas if Scott Morrison and the Liberals just stay on that one-lane highway that's dead straight and just keep banging on about the economy and banging on about don't risk labour, you sort of feel like that will get them there, whether people think that's fair or not. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that you could see Jim Chalmers on uh, the shadow treasurer on Insiders at the weekend, not wanting to commit labour to even an increase in uh, job seeker, new start and the old uh, name. Mm. Uh, we don't have a concluded view on it as his account. And you'd, you'd think on one level, traditional labour, that would be a no-brainer, but they are plainly cautious about the notion that they're going to go in and be profligate spenders on welfare, can't be trusted, can only raise their taxes, your taxes, to pay for these sorts of extra welfare spending, et cetera, uh, that they're kind of running scared on things which, you know, so much evidence, including from the business community, says that uh, that payment should be increased. It does leave them. The economy line leaves them feeling so vulnerable. Um, we're into the final sittings of Parliament. One thing we're pretty confident won't turn up, as was previously promised, was a corruption commission at a Commonwealth level. Uh, religious freedom, we'll hear a bit of that over this period. How tricky is that? And what else might we hear? I think that is tricky for the coalition because on their right flank, there's disagreement about exactly how their religious discrimination structuring should look around freedoms to and freedoms from uh, and the law of unintended consequence that if they go down that path, they might actually achieve outcomes that they are not intending. But ultimately, anything I think for Scott Morrison is a distraction if it dominates parliament this next sitting fortnight, if it's not his chance to just bang on about the economy. So all he wants to do is to highlight those differences and also get through, I think, this parliament as well. You know, there'll be farewell speeches in the event that Parliament doesn't return next year. I think it probably will return because I actually think they'll go in May, having brought the budget forward to April. But there is a chance that they call the election shortly after Australia Day and therefore there is no there are no parliamentary sittings before a March election. So he just wants to get through this. I will be surprised if, you know, if a federal corruption watchdog 
rears its head, which is of itself interesting because it means that if there is a change of government, for example, and the coalition never got to that, then it becomes Labor's job to structure it and legislate it in government, which would be interesting. If, of course, that doesn't happen, well, do we ever see one? Because does a re-elected Scott Morrison even bother to go there despite previous commitments? I assume so, but I assume it would be heavily watered down. But this next sitting fortnight, Labor will try and cause a degree of chaos to show that there is chaos attached to this government as an optics. The coalition will try and show that Labor can't be trusted on the economy and just keep banging away on that one. And a very quick one, Hugh, Monday, the day that we're talking, the last full day that Tony Smith sits in the Speaker's chair in the House of Representatives, Tuesday morning, he will be resigning and being replaced by presumably a Liberal. But I hear that there could be some contestation from Labor in terms of that selection. Either way, though, he is regarded, if not as the best speaker in modern Australian politics, certainly one of them. And he's on his way out, which is a shame and could be a bearing, by the way, on how the parliament functions over this last sitting fortnight. Fascinating. I believe, and here's a a tip, that uh, the speaker is going to make an interesting uh, intervention in a matter, a legal matter. Can't say more than that because there are gag orders in place. Mm. So something quite extraordinary is, I'm advised, about to surface, and we'll see more of that in the coming days. And it comes from the office of the Speaker of the Parliament, Tony Smith, the man who's now leaving the job. Watch for that one. It's more to talk about, actually. We should get up and do it more earlier in the morning and go for longer. <laughs> no, let's not do that. As long as we can turn our brains on in time. Yeah, there's so many questions. Just very quickly, you mentioned farewell speeches, if this is the last sitting. But presumably, Parliament doesn't know if it's the last sitting. So therefore, if indeed it is the last sitting, people will who are leaving the Parliament will miss their opportunity for a farewell speech. Or do they get to do it at the beginning of the next Parliament? Presumably they don't. No, no, I don't think they do, actually. And that has happened before, that people miss that window, which is why they tend to be conservative, don't they, and try to get it in just in case. Interesting. Good to talk to you. Safe travels in Parliament, and uh, we'll watch your reports on Channel 10. Good to talk to you. All the best. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 